Your listenership is so important to us, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So does following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your time and support. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so glad to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning where we left off in The Hound of the Baskervilles. But before we open our book, just enjoy this moment to relax. You have nothing left to do today and nothing to worry about. Take a big stretch in bed and give your body this opportunity to release any tension from the day. Let's take a few deep breaths now, inhaling and collecting any worries or concerns, and then exhaling, letting them all go. Once more now, inhale, and exhale. Wonderful. Last time we were together, we met Holmes and Watson at their residence in Baker Street, wondering about the owner of the walking stick left behind by a visitor they had missed the evening before, a Dr. James Mortimer. During these musings, Dr. Mortimer was calling on them again and came to present Holmes with a case surrounding the suspicious death of his close friend and patient, Sir Charles Baskerville, in his district of Devonshire. He read Holmes a manuscript dating from 1742 regarding a Hugo Baskerville being murdered on the moors surrounding the Baskerville estate, while in devilish pursuit of a local maiden by what is rumoured to have been a giant, hound-like creature. The manuscript spoke of this curse having beset all the male Baskerville descendants ever since. He also read a local newspaper report stating the death of Sir Charles Baskerville had been concluded by coroners to be nothing more than a heart attack. And that is where we pick back up tonight, with Sherlock Holmes having heard the evidence presented by Dr. Mortimer and looking for further initial clues in the case. So lie back, relax, and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages in The Hound of the Baskervilles.
chapter two continued. I must thank you, said Sherlock Holmes, for calling my attention to a case which certainly presents some features of interest. I had observed some newspaper comment at the time, but I was exceedingly preoccupied by that little affair of the Vatican cameos, and in my anxiety to oblige the Pope, I lost touch with several interesting English cases. This article, you say, contains all the public facts. It does, said Dr. James Mortimer. Then let me have the private ones. He leaned back, put his fingertips together, and assumed his most impassive and judicial expression. In doing so, said Dr. Mortimer, who had begun to show signs of some strong emotion. I am telling that which I have not confided to anyone. My motive for withholding it from the coroner's inquiry is that a man of science shrinks from placing himself in the public position of seeming to endorse a popular superstition. I had the further motive that Baskerville Hall, as the papers says, would certainly remain untenanted if anything were done to increase its already rather grim reputation. For both these reasons, I thought that I was justified in telling rather less than I knew, since no practical good could result from it. But with you, there is no reason why I should not be perfectly frank. The moor is very sparsely inhabited, and those who live near each other are thrown very much together. For this reason, I saw a good deal of Sir Charles Baskerville, with the exception of Mr. Franklin of Laughter Hall and Mr. Stapleton, the naturalist. There are no other men of education within many miles. Sir Charles was a retiring man, but the chance of his illness brought us together, and a community of interests in science kept us so. He had brought back much scientific information from South Africa, and many a charming evening we have spent together. Within the last few months, it became increasingly plain to me that Sir Charles's nervous system was strained to the breaking point. He had taken this legend, which I have read to you, exceedingly to heart. So much so that, although he would walk upon his own grounds, nothing would induce him to go out upon the moor at night. Incredible as it may appear to you, Mr. Holmes, he was honestly convinced that a dreadful fate overhung his family, and certainly the records which he was able to give of his ancestors were not encouraging. The idea of some ghastly presence constantly haunted him, and on more than one occasion, he has asked me whether I had, on my medical journeys at night, ever seen any strange creature or heard the baying of a hound. The latter question he put to me several times, and always with a voice which vibrated with excitement. I can well remember driving up to his house in the evening 
some three weeks before the fatal event. He chanced to be at his hall door. I had descended from my carriage and was standing in front of him when I saw his eyes fix themselves over my shoulder and stare past me with an expression of the most dreadful horror. I whisked round and had just time to catch a glimpse of something which I took to be a large black calf passing at the head of the drive. So excited and alarmed was he that I was compelled to go down to the spot where the animal had been and look around for it. It was gone, however, and the incident appeared to make the worst impression upon his mind. I stayed with him all the evening, and it was on that occasion to explain the emotion which he had shown that he confided to my keeping that narrative which I read to you when I first came. I mention this small episode because it assumes some importance in view of the tragedy which followed, but I was convinced at the time that the matter was entirely trivial and that his excitement had no justification. It was my advice that Sir Charles was about to go to London. His heart was, I knew, affected, and the constant anxiety in which he lived, however chimerical the cause might be, was evidently having a serious effect upon his health. I thought that a few months among the distractions of town would send him back a new man. Mr. Stapleton, a mutual friend who was much concerned at his state of health, was of the same opinion. At the last instant came this terrible catastrophe. On the night of Sir Charles's death, Barrymore, the butler who made the discovery, sent Perkins, the groom, on horseback to me, and as I was sitting up late, I was able to reach Baskerville Hall within an hour of the event. I checked and corroborated all the facts which were mentioned at the inquest. I followed the footsteps down the yew alley. I saw the spot at the moor gate where he seemed to have waited. I remarked the change in shape of the prints after that point. I noted there were no other footsteps, save those of Barrymore, on the soft gravel. And finally, I carefully examined the body, which had not been touched until my arrival. Sir Charles lay on his face, his arms out, his fingers dug into the ground, and his features convulsed with some strong emotion, to such an extent that I could hardly have sworn to his identity. There was certainly no physical injury of any kind. But one false statement was made by Barrymore at the inquest. He said that there were no traces upon the ground round the body. He did not observe any, but I did, some little distance off but fresh and clear. Footprints, asked Holmes. Footprints, 
nodded Mortimer. Man's or a woman's? Holmes asked. Dr. Mortimer looked strangely at us for an instant, and his voice sank to almost a whisper as he answered. Mr. Holmes, they were footprints of a gigantic hound. Chapter 3 The Problem I confess that these words a shudder passed through me. There was a thrill in the doctor's voice which showed that he was himself deeply moved by that which he told us. Holmes leaned forward in his excitement and his eyes had the hard, dry glitter which shot from them when he was keenly interested. You saw this? said he. As clearly as I see you, replied Mortimer. And you said nothing, asked Holmes. What was the use? said Mortimer. How was it that no one else saw it? Holmes replied. These marks were some twenty yards from the body, and no one gave them a thought, Mortimer said. I don't suppose I should have done had I not known this legend. There are many sheepdogs on the moor, inquired Holmes. No doubt, said Mortimer, but this was no sheepdog. You say it was large, Holmes asked, but it had not approached the body. Enormous, Mortimer answered. And no, it had not. What sort of night was it? Asked Holmes. Uh, damp and raw, said Mortimer, but not actually raining. And what is the alley like? Holmes asked. There are two lines of old yew hedge, twelve feet high and impenetrable. The walk in the centre is about eight feet across. There is a strip of grass about six feet broad on either side between the hedges and the walk. I understand that the yew hedge is penetrated at one point by a gate, asked Holmes. Yes, the wicket gate, which leads on to the moor, said Mortimer but there is no other opening. So, to reach the yew alley, one either has to come down from it from the house or else to enter it by the moor gate, Holmes inquired. There is an exit through a summer house at the far end, Mortimer replied. Sir Charles lay about fifty yards from it. Now, tell me, Dr. Mortimer, and this is important. The marks which you saw were on the path and not on the grass? No marks could show on the grass, Mortimer answered. They were on the edge of the path, on the same side as the moorgate. You interest me exceedingly, said Holmes. Another point, 
was the wicket gate closed. Closed and padlocked, said Mortimer. It's about four feet high. Anyone could have got over it, and there were no marks in particular to be seen by the wicket gate. Good heaven, did no one examine? Holmes asked. Yes, I examined myself, said Mortimer. It was all very confused. Sir Charles had evidently stood there for five or ten minutes. How do you know that? inquired Holmes. Because the ash had twice dropped from his cigar, said Mortimer. Excellent, Holmes replied. This is a colleague, Watson, after our own heart. But the marks... He had left his own marks all over that small patch of gravel, said Mortimer. I could discern no others. Sherlock Holmes struck his hand against his knee with an impatient gesture. If I had only been there, he said, it is evidently a case of extraordinary interest and one which presented immense opportunities to the scientific expert. That gravel page, upon which I might have read so much, has now been smudged by the rain and defaced by the clogs of curious peasants. Oh, Dr. Mortimer, to think that you should not have called me in. You have indeed much to answer for. I could not call you in, Mr. Holmes, without disclosing these facts to the world, he replied, and I have already given my reasons for not wishing to do so. At this, Dr. Mortimer hesitated. There is a realm in which the most acute and most experienced of detectives is helpless, you mean that the thing is supernatural? Asked Holmes. I did not positively say so, responded Mortimer. No, said Holmes, but you evidently think it. Since the tragedy, Mr. Holmes, there have come to my ears several incidents which are hard to reconcile with the settled order of nature said Mortimer. For example, I find that before the terrible event occurred, several people had seen a creature upon the moor which corresponds with this Baskerville demon and which could not possibly be any animal known to science. They all agreed that it was a huge creature, luminous, ghastly and spectral. I have cross-examined these men, one of them a hard-headed countryman, one a farrier, and the other a moorland farmer, who all tell the same story of this dreadful apparition, exactly corresponding to the hellhound of the legend. I assure you that there is a reign of terror in the district, and that it is a hardy man who will cross the moor at night. And you, 
A trained man of science believe it to be supernatural? Asked Holmes. Mortimer shook his head. I do not know what to believe. Holmes shrugged his shoulders. I have hitherto confined my investigations to this world, said he. In a modest way, I have combated evil, but to take on the father of evil himself would perhaps be too ambitious a task. Yet you must admit that the footmark is material. The original hound was material enough to tug a man's throat out, and yet it was diabolical as well, said Mortimer. I see that you have quite gone over to the supernaturalists, said Holmes. But now, Dr. Mortimer, tell me this. If you hold these views, why have you come to consult me at all? You tell me in the same breath that it is useless to investigate Sir Charles's death and that you desire me to do it. I did not say that I desire you to do it, Mortimer replied. Then how can I assist you? Asked Holmes. By advising me as what I should do with Sir Henry Baskerville, who arrives at Waterloo Station, Dr. Mortimer looked at his watch, in exactly one hour and a quarter. He being the heir, asked Holmes. Yes, said Mortimer. On the death of Sir Charles, we inquired for this young gentleman and found that he had been farming in Canada. From the accounts which have reached us, he is an excellent fellow in every way. I speak now not as a medical man, but as a trustee and executor of Sir Charles's will. There is no other claimant, I presume? Asked Holmes. None, said Mortimer. The only other kinsman whom we have been able to trace was Roger Baskerville, the youngest of three brothers, of whom poor Sir Charles was the elder. The second brother, who died young, is the father of this lad, Henry. Roger was the black sheep of the family. He came of the old, masterful Baskerville strain and was the very image, they tell me, of the family picture of Hugo. He made England too hot to hold, fled to Central America, and died there in 1876 of yellow fever. Henry is the last of the Baskervilles. In one hour and five minutes, I meet him at Waterloo Station. I have had a wire that he arrived at Southampton this morning. Now, Mr. Holmes, what would you advise me to do with him? Holmes shrugged. Why should he not go to the home of his father's? It seems natural, does it not? said Mortimer. And yet, consider that every Baskerville who goes there meets with an evil fate. 
I feel sure that if Sir Charles could have spoken with me before his death, he would have warned me against bringing this man, the last of the Baskervilles, and the sole heir to great wealth, to that deadly place. And yet it cannot be denied that the prosperity of the whole, poor, bleak countryside depends upon his presence. All the good work which has been done by Sir Charles will crash to the ground if there is no tenant of the hall. I fear lest I should be swayed too much by my own obvious interest in the matter, and that is why I bring the case before you and ask for your advice. Holmes considered for a little time. Put into plain words, the matter is this, said he. In your opinion, there is a diabolical agency which makes Dartmoor an unsafe abode for a Baskerville. That is your opinion. Mortimer nodded. At least I might go to the length of saying that there is some evidence that this may be so. Exactly, said Holmes. But surely, if your supernatural theory be correct, it could work the young man evil in London as easily as in Devonshire. A devil with merely local powers, like a parish vestry, would be too inconceivable a thing. You put the matter more flippantly, Mr. Holmes, than you would probably do if you were brought into personal contact with these things, said Mortimer. Your advice, then, as I understand it, is that the young man will be as safe in Devonshire as in London. He comes in fifty minutes. What would you recommend? I recommend, sir, that you take a cab, call off your spaniel who is scratching at my front door, and proceed to Waterloo to meet Sir Henry Baskerville, said Holmes. And then asked Mortimer. And then you will say nothing to him at all until I have made up my mind about the matter, Holmes replied. How long will it take you to make up your mind? Mortimer asked. Twenty-four hours, Holmes said. At ten o'clock tomorrow, Dr. Mortimer, I will be much obliged to you if you will call upon me here and it will be of help to me in my plans for the future if you will bring Sir Henry Baskerville with you. I will do so, Mr. Holmes. He scribbled the appointment on his shirt cuff and hurried off in his strange, peering, absent-minded fashion. Holmes stopped him at the head of the stair. Only one more question, Dr. Mortimer. You say that before Sir Charles Baskerville's death, several people saw this apparition upon the moor? Three people did, Mortimer answered. Did any see it after? Asked Holmes. Mortimer shook his head. 
I have not heard of any. Thank you, said Holmes. Good morning. Holmes returned to his seat with that quiet look of inward satisfaction, which meant that he had a congenial task before him. Going out, Watson? he asked me. Unless I can help you, said I. No, my dear fellow, it is at the hour of action that I turn to you for aid, said he. But this is splendid, really unique from some points of view. When you pass Bradley's, would you ask him to send up a pound of the strongest shag tobacco? Thank you. It would be as well if you could make it convenient not to return before evening. Then I should be very glad to compare impressions as to this most interesting problem which has been submitted to us this morning. I knew that seclusion and solitude were very necessary for my friend in these hours of intense mental concentration, during which he weighed every particle of evidence, constructed alternative theories, balanced one against the other, and made up his mind as to which points were essential and which immaterial. I, therefore, spent the day at my club and did not return to Baker Street until evening. It was nearly nine o'clock when I found myself in the sitting room once more. My first impression as I opened the door was that a fire had broken out, for the room was so filled with smoke that the light of the lamp upon the table was blurred by it. As I entered, however, my fears were set at rest, for it was the acrid fumes of strong, coarse tobacco which took me by the throat and set me coughing. Through the haze, I had a vague vision of Holmes in his dressing gown, coiled up in an armchair with his black clay pipe between his lips. Several rolls of paper lay around him. Caught cold, Watson, said he. No, it is this poisonous atmosphere, said I. Mm, I suppose it is pretty thick now that you mention it, he replied. Thick? I said. It is intolerable. Open the window, then, said Holmes. You have been at your club all day, I perceive. He laughed at my bewildered expression. There is a delightful freshness about you, Watson, which makes it a pleasure to exercise any small powers which I possess at your expense. A gentleman goes forth on a showery and miry day. He returns immaculate in the evening with the gloss still on his hat and his boots. He has been a fixture, therefore, all day. He is not a man with intimate friends. Where, then, could he have been? Is it not obvious? 
Well, it is rather obvious, I replied. The world is full of obvious things, which nobody by any chance ever observes, said he. Where do you think that I have been? A fixture also, I answered. On the contrary, said Holmes, I have been to Devonshire. I observed his dressing gown once more. But only in spirit, I take it. Exactly, he replied. My body has remained in this armchair and has, I regret to observe, consumed in my absence two large pots of coffee and an incredible amount of tobacco. After you left, I sent down to Stamford's for the ordnance map of this portion of the moor, and my spirit hovered over it all day. I flatter myself that I could find my way about. He unrolled one section and held it over his knee. Here you have the particular district which concerns us. That is Baskerville Hall in the middle with a wood around it. I fancy the U Alley, though not marked under that name, must stretch along this line, with the moor, as you perceive, upon the right of it, he went on. This small clump of buildings here is the hamlet of Grimpton, where our friend Dr. Mortimer has his headquarters. Within a radius of five miles, there are, as you see, only a very few scattered dwellings. Here is Laughter Hall, which was mentioned in the narrative. There is a house indicated here which may be the residence of the naturalist Stapleton, if I remember right, was his name. Here are two moorland farmhouses, High Tor and Fowlmire. Then, 14 miles away, the great convict prison of Princetown. Between and around these scattered points extends the desolate, lifeless moor. This, then, is the stage upon which tragedy has been played, and upon which we may help to play it again. It must be a wild place, I observed. Yes, the setting is a worthy one, said he. If the devil did desire to have a hand in the affairs of men, then you yourself are inclining to the supernatural explanation, said I. The devil's agents may be of flesh and blood, may they not? remarked Holmes. There are two questions waiting for us at the outset. The one is whether any crime has been committed at all. The second is, what is the crime and how was it committed? Of course, if Dr. Mortimer's surmise should be correct, and we are dealing with forces outside the ordinary laws of nature, there is an end of our investigation. 
but we are bound to exhaust all other hypotheses before falling back upon this one. I think we'll shut that window again if you don't mind. It is a singular thing, but I find that a concentrated atmosphere helps a concentration of thought. I have not pushed it to the length of getting into a box to think, but that is the logical outcome of my convictions. Have you turned the case over in your mind? Yes, I nodded. I have thought a good deal of it in the course of the day. And what do you make of it? Holmes asked. It is very bewildering, I replied. It has certainly a character of its own, he said. There are points of distinction about it. That change in the footprints, for example. What do you make of that? I thought for a moment. Mortimer said that the man had walked on tiptoe down that portion of the alley. Holmes shrugged. He only repeated what some fool had said at the inquest. Why should a man walk on tiptoe down the alley? What then? I asked. He was running, Watson. Running desperately. Running for his life. Running until he burst his heart and fell dead upon his face. Running from what? I asked. There lies our problem said Holmes. There are indications that the man was crazed with fear before he ever began to run. I am presuming that the cause of his fears came to him across the moor. If that was so, and it seems most probable, only a man who had lost his wits would have run from the house instead of towards it. If the horse trader's evidence may be taken as true, he ran with cries for help in the direction where help was least likely to be. Then again, whom was he waiting for that night? And why was he waiting for him in the yew alley rather than in his own house? You think that he was waiting for someone? I inquired. Holmes nodded. The man was elderly and infirm. We can understand his taking an evening stroll, but the ground was damp and the night inclement. Is it natural that he should stand for five or ten minutes? As Dr. Mortimer, with more practical sense than I should have given him credit for, deduced from the cigar ash but he went out every evening, I replied. I think it unlikely that he waited at the moor gate every evening, said Holmes. On the contrary, the evidence is that he avoided the moor. That night he waited there. It was the night before he made his departure for London. The thing takes shape, Watson, it becomes coherent. Might I ask you to hand me my viola? 
and we will postpone all further thought upon this business until we have had the advantage of meeting Dr. Mortimer and Sir Henry Baskerville in the morning. Chapter 4 Sir Henry Baskerville Our breakfast table was cleared early, and Holmes waited in his dressing gown for the promised interview. Our clients were punctual to their appointment, for the clock had just struck ten when Dr. Mortimer was shown up, followed by the young baronet. The latter was a small, alert, dark-eyed man about thirty years of age, very sturdily built, with thick black eyebrows and a strong, pugnacious face. He wore a ruddy-tinted tweed suit and had the weather-beaten appearance of one who has spent most of his time in the open air. And yet, there was something steady in his eye and the quiet assurance of his bearing which indicated the gentleman. This is Sir Henry Baskerville, said Dr. Mortimer. Why, yes, said he. And the strange thing is, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, that if my friend here had not proposed coming round to you this morning, I should have come on my own account. I understand that you think out little puzzles, and I have one this morning which wants more thinking out than I am able to give it. Pray, take a seat, Sir Henry, said Holmes. Do I understand you to say that you have yourself had some remarkable experience since you arrived in London? Nothing of much importance, Mr. Holmes, said Sir Henry. Only a joke as like as not. It was this letter, if you can call it a letter, which reached me this morning. He laid an envelope upon the table and we all bent over it. It was of common quality, greyish in colour. The address, Sir Henry Baskerville, Northumberland Hotel, was printed in rough characters. The postmark, Charing Cross, and the date of posting the preceding evening. Who knew that you were going to the Northumberland Hotel? asked Holmes, glancing keenly across at our visitor. No one could have known, said Sir Henry. We only decided after I met Dr. Mortimer. But Dr. Mortimer was no doubt already stopping there, asked Holmes. No, I had been staying with a friend, said the doctor. There was no possible indication that we intended to go to this hotel, Baskerville added. Someone seems to be very deeply interested in your movements, said Holmes. Out of the envelope, he took half a sheet of foolscap paper folded into four. This he opened and spread flat upon the table. Across the middle of it, a single sentence had been formed by the expedient of pasting printed words upon it. It read, 
as you value your life or your reason, keep away from the more. Only the word more was printed in ink. Now, said Sir Henry Baskerville, perhaps you will tell me, Mr. Holmes, what in thunder is the meaning of that? And who is it that takes so much interest in my affairs? Holmes turned to the doctor. What do you make of it, Dr. Mortimer? You must allow that there is nothing supernatural about this at any rate. No, sir, Mortimer replied. But it might very well come from someone who was convinced that the business is supernatural. What business? asked Sir Henry sharply. It seems to me that all you gentlemen know a great deal more than I do about my own affairs. You shall share our knowledge before you leave this room, Sir Henry. I promise you that, said Sherlock Holmes. We shall confine ourselves for the present, with your permission, to this very interesting document, which must have been put together and posted yesterday evening. Have you yesterday's times, Watson? It is here in the corner, I replied. Might I trouble you for it? The inside page, please, with the leading articles. He glanced swiftly over it, running his eyes up and down the columns. Capital article this on free trade, Permit me to give you an extract from it. You may be cajoled into imagining that your own special trade or your own industry will be encouraged by a protective tariff, but it stands to reason that such legislation must, in the long run, keep away wealth from the country, diminish the value of our imports, and lower the general conditions of life in this island. What do you think of that, Watson? Said Holmes in high glee, rubbing his hands together with satisfaction. Don't you think that that is an admirable sentiment? Dr. Mortimer looked at Holmes with an air of professional interest and Sir Henry Baskerville turned a pair of puzzled, dark eyes upon me. I don't know much about the tariff and things of that kind, said Sir Henry, but it seems to me we've got a bit off the trail so far as this note is concerned. On the contrary, said Holmes, I think we are particularly hot upon the trail, Sir Henry. Watson here knows more about my methods than you do, but I fear that even he has not quite grasped the significance of the sentence. No, I confess that I see no connection, I replied. And yet, my dear Watson, there is so very close a connection that one is extracted out of the other. He recited a series of words. You, your, 
life, reason, value. Keep away from the... Don't you see now whence these words have been taken? By thunder, you're right. Well, if that isn't smart, said Sir Henry. If any possible doubt remained, it is settled by the fact that keep away and from the are cut out in one piece, said Holmes. Really, Mr. Holmes, this exceeds anything which I could have imagined, said Dr. Mortimer, gazing at my friend in amazement. I could understand anyone saying that the words were from a newspaper, but that you should name which, and add that it came from the leading article, is really one of the most remarkable things which I have ever known. How did you do it? This is my special hobby, and the differences are obvious, said Holmes. There is a difference, to my eyes, between the leaded bourgeois type of a Times article and the slovenly print of an evening halfpenny paper. The detection of types is one of the most elementary branches of knowledge to the special expert in crime, though I confess that once, when I was very young, I confused the Leeds Mercury with the Western Morning News. But a Times leader is entirely distinctive, and these words could have been taken from nothing else. As it was done yesterday, the strong probability was that we should find the words in yesterday's issue. So far as I can follow you then, Mr. Holmes, said Sir Henry Baskerville, Someone cut out this message with scissors. Nail scissors, said Holmes. You can see that it was very short-bladed scissors, since the cutter had to take two snips over keep away. That is so, replied Sir Henry. Someone then cut out the message with a pair of short-bladed scissors and pasted it with paste. Gum, said Holmes, and pasted it with gum onto the paper, Sir Henry continued. But I want to know why the word more should have been written. Because he could not find it in print, said Holmes. The other words were all simple, and might be found in any issue, but more would be less common.